Welcome to the Women's Football Podcast. I'm Lee Edwards. Shauna's away. She told me she's heading up to North Wales. I don't know whether she's going to be the next uh, inmate in the I'm a Celebrity camp. Who knows? But uh, this is our latest look at the women's game from the Champions League to the National League. And coming up, two of our top five London clubs are part of company with their managers. We've got a look at this week's European Championship qualifiers. Could Northern Ireland pull off what was once seemingly impossible? Phil Neville's Lionesses are in camp this week for their final get-together of 2020. We discuss what's next for the squad who haven't played since March. Paris Saint-Germain goalkeeper Ariana Crescioni joins us on the pod as her side moved top of the Division 1 Feminine with a historic victory over Lyon. And after the suspension of fixtures due to the latest lockdown, we look at the return of the FA Cup and National League. And joining me to discuss everything after a short break last week is freelance journalist Hannah Mendelssohn. Hiya, Hannah. Hello, great to be back. And we have also got all-round women's football expert, Andrew Rayburn. Hi, Andrew. Um, certainly round, yes. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> good, good, hello to you again, Luke. <laughs> and uh, joining us back once again is former FA media officer and Aston Villa media officer, Emily Lyles. Hiya, Emily. Hiya, Luke. Great, great to be here. And good to have you on. And we're going to start off with a bit of news that happened over our little break and over the international break. Two clubs parting company with their manager. The, the biggest news was at Tottenham Hotspur, where management duo Karen Hills and Juan Carlos Amoros left the North London side. The pair had guided Spurs from non-league to becoming a professional outfit. And surprisingly, they've been replaced by Rianne Skinner, the former England assistant manager and England women's under-19s head coach. Emily, what was your reaction to the news for Slip Parent and Wan's departure? Yeah, I think certainly looking at the timing of it, the fact that I guess in some respects we're still quite early on in the season, it surprised me. Again, as you alluded to there, Luke, what that duo have done and certainly what Karen's done is absolutely phenomenal there. Goes way back, part of the furniture really at the club. Um, And I think what was probably even more surprising was the turnaround between announcing their departure and then obviously that Rianne was going in. Um, But I think it's it's one of those situations where when that happens, and obviously I, I totally understand that Tottenham need to improve, obviously feel an urgency to get that news out and, and to, to start work and, and certainly after this international break. But I think you almost have that initial reaction and then the new the new individual comes in and you almost don't have the time to reflect on what the previous duo did. And I, and I just hope really that in time that that is recognised even more so, probably a little bit more widely than it has been. Um, all that said, I think they can both look back on their time there with great pride because what they've achieved non-league to WSL, you know, I know it hasn't gone too well for them at the start of the season, but they have competed and, and they've shown what they can do as a club. And obviously, you know, we've seen some of the signings that they've made as well. Really, really exciting. Um, again, don't know if I'm moving on a little bit quickly here talking about Rianne, but she's someone that I think has brilliant pedigree for someone of her age she's got great experience she's been involved with the FA and the England setup for a while now and I think in the same by the same token it's a really exciting opportunity for her and and looking forward to seeing what she can do I think it is a good move because like you say I think she was going to leave anyway because she was assistant to Phil Neville he's obviously going so probably a good time for her to move on isn't it it is. And I think a lot of coaches you will see certainly in the national team setup, while they enjoy working 
I guess we can speak really from the England point of view. They like working with the teams and they like working in the youth setups. A lot of them are still craving that that domestic opportunity, that day-to-day, week-to-week match action, that day-to-day contact with the players. So, yeah, I think it's a really, really good opportunity for her. And, and you know, one that she's earned, really, Luke. And Hannah, does it seem a little harsh to you given how tight it is at the bottom end of the table or our Tottenham? Because obviously they made a statement signing with Alex Morgan. They're kind of they're looking to do a lot of things. Do you think it is harsh or not then? Or do you think that it was the right decision? And, and how much of Alex Morgan's injury has had an impact, do you think, on it? Um, it's really hard to say. I think, you know, it was a shock move. Um, and it's not something that you've really seen so much of in the women's game um, with these kind of like sudden departures but I do think that it shows that the club overall are kind of serious about staying up and about establishing themselves in that they're willing to take such decisive action so early on in the season and I guess you know it probably they do want to if there's a chance I mean who knows if there's a chance to keep Alex Morgan beyond the end of this season we don't know kind of like the ins and outs of her contract or even beyond December I think because a I believe yes. the loan's yeah, only yeah, up exactly. until December. So. Christmas, isn't it? Mm. So um, we don't know the ins and outs of her, her contract, whether or not she'll go back. But I guess maybe if there was kind of like, if there are details where she's kind of, you know, maybe open to staying for the full season, then maybe they kind of had to take some action because she won't want to be playing, one would imagine, for a team that's right at the bottom of the league with... But then, you know, I mean, who, who knows? Um, but I, I was definitely shocked. Uh, I think that they've both done, as Emily's already said, so much for the club. But, you know, it's a definite statement of intent from the from Spurs as to what they want. Yeah, I mean, Andrew, we'll move on to West Ham. I mean, for me, looking at that, that seems to be more of a shock than Tottenham Hotspur. Matt Beard, he's, he's, he's stepped down. He said he's comfortable with the decision to leave and it was more mutual consent. Uh, he also said the club were offered a number of US players while he was in charge, but admits the Hammers couldn't afford their wages. Um, so how would you sum up his time in East London? Is it more of a shot than the Tottenham one as well? Yeah, and I think obviously a lot of people out there will be um, uh, more familiar maybe with Matt Beard um, than Karen and Juan, mainly because obviously he's been at a number of uh, other top clubs as well in Liverpool and Chelsea, but also, of course, because of the... Um, the, the fly on the wall documentary is the uh, uh, I wouldn't quite go as far as to say he's the David Brent of women's football, but uh, uh, <laughs> you know, certainly there was, there was, there was very little, um, very little sort of um, gloss over, you know, situations at West Ham. I thought that the, the various documentaries um, first on Jack Sullivan mainly, and then obviously on the, the club itself were very good. And, and, and Matt came across, as you know, as he is a very capable, very forward-thinking manager. What's interesting is that he basically said, "I got the feeling over the you know the previous few weeks that the club and himself were going in opposite directions." Bit of a you know sort of football speak that really for what I mean you know he's not going to divulge every conversation he has. He says he sat down with Jack Sullivan and the conversation sort of meandered a bit, and by the end of it, they decided it was best. Um, for both parties if he if he left well that's not a conversation you you know you just have um 
you know, it's not like he would have woken up that morning and not expected to, to, to something to have come out of that conversation. Um, I wonder whether it's a, a, a difference in ambition. Um, he talks about the fact that some American players were offered and the club couldn't afford it. I wonder if that's just a question that was put to him, you know, about the various American imports to the WSL. And he's just sort of saying, well, you know, we could have signed some, but, you know, that's just our situation. Or whether he was sort of choosing to make a point, maybe that, you know, the resources aren't quite there for West Ham and perhaps he's a little frustrated. Um, certainly we've seen conversations that he's had with uh, Jack Sullivan and the, the recruitment team. Obviously the GM changed last season as well. So I think maybe sometimes it is just time for a change. And I know that's sort of a lot of waffle for me to come to, to kind of come to that conclusion. Um, but perhaps the situation... I thought harsh on yourself, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> it's shorter Don't than my usual answers. Yeah. Um, but maybe it is just the fact that it's time for a different voice and that, that can a change can be as good as a rest and we'll have to see what happens with both Spurs and West Ham now. Talking of time for a different voice, Emily, I'll bring you in now. And uh, the Times in particular reporting that Birmingham City manager Carla Ward is a favourite to take over at West Ham. Uh, she's done very well at Birmingham so far, getting him to that FA Cup semi-final. And what do you make of the links? Do you think she she'd do a good? You think she'd be a good fit for West Ham? And if not, who's your tip to take over? Oh, that's a really good question in terms of a tip. In terms of of Carla Ward, I think it's an interesting one because you know, yes, she's done very very well, but she only joined there in the summer. It's her first job working with a full time team. Um, and I guess in if you're her. I appreciate that West Ham are ambitious and, and they've made that known. But by the same token, if you're doing well, um, it's going well at Birmingham, probably exceeding expectations given players that they've lost and the situation at Birmingham at the moment. So she might think, you know what, I'm still new to this. I'm still building something here. What? Why jump ship? In terms of a tip, Luke, do you know, I was thinking about that a little bit earlier on and and. There was no one for me that really stood out as a possible candidate at this point. Um, Because, I mean, if you take, say, the Tottenham situation that we've already discussed, I mean, I I wouldn't have necessarily put someone like Rianne in that category at this particular point. So it might be, I guess, that they go down a slightly different route that that we're not aware of. And I don't know if anyone else has got any thoughts on on someone who may be tipped to take the hot seat. No. (laughs) (laughs) I think what's what's interesting, I don't know what you think, Emily, that... that obviously these changes have been made within an international sort of period. And I think that is uh, certainly a time for clubs to take stock, particularly after a couple of months of the season. Normally by this stage, of course, we've played more games. It happens in the men's game as well. And it's particularly in this period, this sort of international break, apart from the fact it's the last one before the new year, but teams also want to get their house in order for, for transfer windows as well. Don't they? They want to give a new broom a chance to make a change. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's a really, really good point, Andrew. And it's interesting because in that respect, it seems surprising that we haven't heard anything from West Ham just yet. But again, it may be that they have something up their sleeve. They're speaking to people. Those talks are advanced. And, you know, we might learn of that that fairly soon. Um, But as I say, it's just the Carla Ward one. I'm just not sure that at this particular point, that's something that, that she would do. But I could be wrong. You think- mm. And of course, I was just going to say the other the other thing as well is it does maybe contrast the approaches between the two clubs because, like you said, um, Spurs. I clearly had Rianne Skinner in mind when they made the change. West Ham maybe didn't have anybody in mind necessarily. Do you think that maybe West Ham will 
look abroad. You know, maybe they'll look to America or something like that, or a successful coach from abroad rather than maybe closer to home. Or do you think they wouldn't be able to afford them? Hence, why Matt Beer left in the first place. Yeah, I don't. It wouldn't surprise me if they did look abroad. I mean, if you look at like the somewhere like the NWSL, for example, there might be some coaches with some itchy feet after a, quite a disrupted year. And I mean. Um, West Ham did sign, obviously she's British, but Rachel Daly came over from the American setup, which is one omission from that interview that he said, because obviously she plays for uh, Houston. Clearly forgotten about her, Annie. But yeah, I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if they look a bit further afield. Well, I, I uh, had the opportunity of speaking to the Houston Dash head coach, actually, um, uh, James Clarkson um, from Wisbeach in Cambridgeshire, um, and they won the the, the NWSL Challenge Cup, um, uh, the sort of the, the tournament that replaced the uh, the regular season. Um, and I did sort of ask him about whether the WSL featured in his future career plans, and he basically said yes. Um, but I guess he whether he'd weigh up the option of, of, of he seems quite settled in Houston. His, his uh, wife's American, you know, and he's got a lot of ties out there and he's been in America for a long, long time, but there are quite a few English coaches in the, in the NWSL. So, you know, one of them might be tempted to be uh, lured over. Um, but yeah, I mean, West Ham obviously have a, 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 an open, you know, open eyes towards Europe when they, you know, with their recruitment players for you know, policy for players, um, they might look to that route. Luke, as you say, for, for, for the next coach. So we're going to turn our attentions now to the Euro 2022 qualifiers that have been taking place. And quite a remarkable week for Northern Ireland, having drawn two and lost two of their first four games of this campaign and not having won a qualifying game since, I think, 2015. All of a sudden, wins on the road against Faroe Islands and Belarus in recent months have left Kenny Shields' side with destiny in their own hands. Friday night saw Northern Ireland edge past Belarus 3-2 in a five-goal thriller to move closer to securing a place in the playoffs for that tournament. Hurston McGuinness's 70th-minute strike sealed the victory. And Northern Ireland will be in the playoffs if they win at home to the Faroe Islands on Tuesday, which will look lightly, I think, won't it, Emily? I mean, certainly you'd expect them to beat the Faroe Islands and they've never previously taken part in a major championship either or be even been in a playoff to reach one. How big an achievement would this be? Oh, it would be absolutely huge, isn't it? I mean, you, you alluded to earlier, Luke, the fact that, you know, it looked it looked nearly impossible. I think it's probably fair to say not that long ago, but what they've done has been remarkable. I think something that's really struck with me is the amount of coverage around it as well. You can see that they've started to build that momentum. It's a real story, which I think is brilliant. When, when any of our home nations are successful, builds that momentum, it really, really helps and people are behind them. And I think, as you say, they've gained the results to put themselves in this position and, and it's absolutely fantastic. And as you say, they go into Tuesday now, favourites to, to get the job done. What's impressed you the way they've they've gone about the business then as well? I think in general that there's been there haven't there hasn't been any panic. There's been a calmness about them. I think when you sort of see the reaction from their camp from Kenny Shields in terms of what what's been said, it, even sort of at the start of the qualifying campaign, you know there wasn't a panic. There was no there was no concern. They knew that they could do it, I think, deep down, and they didn't get too despondent about some of their earlier results. And, you know, they bear the fruits of that. And I think 
that it's a very cliche phrase, but tables never lie, groups never lie. And you look at the group and you look at the position they're in and, and they've earned that now. Yeah, and in the same group, it's probably a good job that Sharned isn't here because she'd be saying this through gritted teeth, but it's a slightly less forward straight picture for the Welsh. They need to beat Belarus on Tuesday and hope that Northern Ireland do drop points against Faroe Islands. Should both teams finish on the same number of points, it'll be Northern Ireland who finished higher by the virtue of scoring two away goals in that 2-2 draw with Wales in Newport last year. And I think we said it at the time, didn't we, that um, what a bad result that had turned out to be for Wales. And, it, and, and so it's proved that their qualification chances now are hanging in the balance, aren't they? They are, yeah. And I think what's uh, quite remarkable about it is that Wales have already conceded four goals in seven games. Um, and, you know, I imagine if they were to sort of draw nil-nil or something in against uh, Belarus or even, you know, win with a clean sheet, you expect Northern Ireland to beat the Faroes who, who haven't scored a goal in six matches and have conceded 37. And so you would expect Northern Ireland to, 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 to win. So there's every chance that Wales could keep a clean sheet against uh, Belarus and get knocked out having conceded only four goals in in uh, in eight games. Um, so that's that's quite something. Um, and for Northern Ireland and Northern Irish women's football, as you said, Luke, you know, it would be a, you know, a fantastic, uh, fantastic achievement and something for them to all look forward to as well. I think that's what, what's always great when, um, you know, from, from an English English point of view, we tend to sort of take qualification for tournaments uh, for granted a little bit, which when the men's team have failed to qualify on a couple of occasions, it's come as a bit of a shock. But, you know, for, for, for countries that aren't used to qualifying, it, it, it is that buzz of looking forward to the draw, looking forward to the tournament, Yes, okay. We've got to see what fans are, you know, allowed and everything else with these sort of things. But, but yeah, it's going to be it's going to be terrific if they can make it. And Scotland as well. They made great progress in recent years. Of course, they've got Caroline Weir in their setup, and she's up for the the Pushkas Award for a goal she scored for Manchester City against Manchester United last year. They have qualified for the last two major tournaments, but they have it all to do now with three games remaining. If they're to make it a hat trick, how big a blow? Hannah, would it be for them to miss out? And are you confident that Scotland can get through? Um, I think it would be really, really disappointing for them if they don't get through. They've kind of like, you know, they were, I mean, they were the first Scottish team to qualify for a World Cup, men or women. They've been doing really, really well. And so if they can't pull it back, it will be a massive, massive disappointment. Um, obviously, they uh, didn't have Shelley Kerr at the match because she was self-isolating. So... Um, when they were playing Portugal so perhaps that had something to do with it um, I'm not sure if she'll be back but hopefully they'll be able to kind of pick things up and not let that loss impact their game on Tuesday because it would be a real real disappointment for them to not uh, qualify I think Yeah they take on leaders of the group Finland at Hibernian's Easter Road on Tuesday and uh that's going to be a massive, massive game for them. One international side who haven't seen any competitive action recently is the England women. They were due to play Norway at Bramall Lane next week, but this fixture was cancelled because of COVID-19 travel restrictions for the visitors. And this followed the cancellation of the friendly against Germany scheduled for October. And they're having yet another training camp down at St. George's Park at the minute. And they had an internal game between them as well. She managed to play at Stoke City's Stadium, and as I said, they haven't played competitively since March. Is Phil Neville saying that he's got a crying out for a competitive game, and he's hoping that they'll get something in February and April? It's um, it's a bit of a weird one, Emily. At the minute, Phil Neville could just leave without having played a game since March. At the minute, the way it's going, 
No, and it's interesting because you talk about those teams that are qualifying and I know, you know, Andrew made the point that sometimes we perhaps, from an English perspective, take qualification for granted at times. And I think like it's, it's a little bit ironic in that the teams that are having to play those qualifiers are actually getting that competitive action at the moment. So in a lot of respects are in a stronger position. Um, but no, it, it must be very, very odd. I mean, the fact they haven't had a game since March is is crazy. And they've obviously had... You know, they've had two attempts at trying to get two games on, both of which had to be cancelled. And, and I can imagine it's a very, very frustrating time for them because, yes, they have these training camps and I know that they will be planned to precision, hard work for the players, but nothing's the same as a real game, is it? No, and I know that the Athletic have reported that England are looking to stage their own version of the League Cup as well in, in February. And there's said to be talks with three possible opponents who we don't know as yet. Um, that's that's going to be a, a big thing for them. We're kind of taking the bull by the horns, haven't they, with that? Yeah, I think it's a, it's it's a, you know a, a, a good way of kind of you know, creating your own tournament. If you can't find uh, if you can't find matches from anywhere else, you have to uh, to try and create it yourself. Obviously, you know, taking it, you know, not having played a competitive game since March, yeah, frustrating. And 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 what's equally frustrating, I guess, is for those players who, English players who perhaps have not had many caps or are uncapped, who have started the WSL campaign quite well. Uh, you know, they may be thinking, well, this in a normal season, I might have had a call up by now. But of course, I mean, yes, they might be called up anyway. But you know, they might have had a game to play, um, and they might be missing out on a chance to actually, you know, nail down a place in Phil Neville's thinking. And that's, that's going to be frustrating. There may even be one or two players who end up, who are maybe in the squads, but don't end up playing games to impress whose uh, sort of international careers end before they begin. Yeah. One of those is Manchester United's Lauren James. Of course, her brother Reese is, is well in the England men's setup, but she's received her, her senior call for the Lionesses. And there's also a return for Manchester City's Laura Coombe after a five-year absence. Also, Rinsola, Baba DJ and Lotte Wubamoy of Liverpool and Arsenal have both received their second, shall we say, senior call-ups, even though they haven't played a game yet. Um, but Lauren James, she's she's a very impressive player, isn't she, Emily? And under Casey Stoney at Manchester United, she, she's got a call-up and is it a deserving one? Yeah, I certainly think it is. And I know she's she's impressed the England scouts, both from a WSL performances, but also her time in those younger England age groups as well. And to Andrew's point, I think for someone like that, it's such a shame that there's no game for her to try and be in contention for, whether it's be to possibly start or maybe come off the bench or work away into that match day squad. Um, and because I think for any player, time is always of the essence, isn't it? To get into the thoughts, to impress and show what you can do. And yes, there will be opportunities to do that in this training camp, in these internal games that they're having. Um, but you just hope that it isn't to her detriment moving forward. But I guess she's still a very, very young player and, and has time on her side. One thing I would say, kind of in contrast to that, is obviously it's not ideal that they're not getting game time. But when they're doing these games like with England against England, um, it, that does mean that some of the younger players are getting in. And Phil Neville tends to be quite like traditional with his team selection squads. He picks the kind of like experienced players, and so. I wonder whether or not it would be really interesting to see if they do manage to organise a tournament, how much his team lineup changes from having had these matches where everybody's on the pitch. Um, I'd be quite intrigued to see. Yeah, yeah. I certainly agree with that, Hannah, because I think as well you saw 
that there's been previous She Believes Cups that they've contested where they have taken a fairly youthful squad and they've chopped and changed and mixed and matched a bit. But because they are lacking in in real action, it makes you wonder whether he might go almost more traditional to to a team that would compete, or maybe or maybe that that youth approach would would follow again. I don't know. Yeah, I know she's got. I know she's got another job to focus on, but I wonder whether also this is kind of disrupting Serena Vigman's thoughts as well about getting an early sort of introduction to, to 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 some newer players that might come into the England setup. You know, she will know all about the WSL, of course, and 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 and, and uh, you know all about the, the the fringe players that England have. But you know, she she will be more familiar with those that she's come up against and and those that she's familiar with. And it's uh, there will be some players that she will want to see, I guess, eventually in an England shirt. And also, Hannah Laura Coombs is back in the squad for the first time since 2015, and it's a good, exciting young squad now, isn't it? Yes, definitely. Um, I think that you know there have been a lot of people called up this year, and I'm really excited to see see how the lineup changes. Um, I think that there were a lot of people in in the squad who've been in the squad for a really long time up in like in the last last world cup and things and so it's exciting there's a lot of potential talent and with the euros now kind of like now well a year and a half ish away i think that we could have a completely different squad for the lionesses by then with a lot and there's a lot of talent on the benches so it's exciting yeah it'll be interesting to see what happens there? Well, we're going to head across the, the channel now and head to Paris. And earlier this week, we caught up with Paris Saint-Germain goalkeeper Ariane Crescione, virtually, of course. And uh, there's quite a significant result for Paris Saint-Germain last weekend. They recorded a 1-0 victory over Lyon and they played it at the Parc de Prince as well. They now sit one point ahead at the top of Division 1 Feminine. And the result ended an 80-game beating streak for Lyon. It was their first defeat in almost four years in the league and uh, Emily caught up with Ariana and here's what she had to say about the result and her own role or should we say roles on and off the field. So first of all Ariana I think really there's probably only one place to start in that it's been a really difficult year for everyone like many leagues your league was cancelled in March PSG then came back in July played a few friendlies and then competed in the French Cup and then the Champions League. Would you say that those games over the summer between July and September helped establish a little bit of a rhythm heading into what now is the current season? Well, first off, I want to say thank you for having me and hopefully we can shed some light on women's football and share some cool stuff in this podcast. But uh, yes and no. I would say personally for women's football in France and especially with my club, I think in a weird way, we've been one of the luckiest places to be playing women's football because our league was one of the first to stop So for us, when we began our preseason, a lot of the girls had done a really good job of being fit. And I think that has shown, especially in our last game on Friday against Leon, I think we are by far the fitter team. So I think it's a a hats off to all my teammates who worked really hard at home and kind of got their heads straight around this whole crazy situation that we're all in. And then obviously our staff that's kept us in shape. And they've also done a really good job about giving us kind of extra time off. We've had more days off or, or... not chiller training sessions, but uh, I feel like last year we trained harder, but different. They're they're really doing a a good job of trying to give us a day off, an afternoon off or a morning off, and we can sleep in before we go to practice in the afternoon. And I think it's really paying off on the field where 
last season, I didn't feel like we had as many days off, but we were more tired when we got to this point in the season. And so I think those extra days off or sometimes if we play Saturday, they'll give us Sunday, Monday off where that wasn't the case in the past. It would only be Sunday off and then training Monday. So I think this new found, I don't want to say freedom, but lax is actually doing well on the girls' legs and, and how we're able to perform on the field. And you touched on that victory over Leon there. I take it it's a very happy camp at the moment at your place. Absolutely. I will throw in that victory in every conversation I have for the next months until we play them again, or God forbid something goes wrong and we're dethroned from that first position. But as the club who's always competing with Leon and we're just right there at the tip, it feels really good to be at the top of the table and to have won the game outright in full time and not just beat them. Um, they're a great squad. They're st- they will always be a great squad. By no means do I think they have fallen but it felt good to beat them on the grass. It wasn't overtime. It wasn't a penalty kick. It wasn't a random call from the referee. It was in play and it felt fabulous. I can imagine it certainly did. And, and I know you spoke to Luke on the Women's Football Podcast Instagram live fairly recently. And I know there you said that you were quietly confident that PSG could potentially break Leon's monopoly on the domestic front. And of course, you alluded to it there. You're unbeaten so far eight victories, one draw in the league, still early days. But is it fair to say that those signs are good? I mean, those signs are always good. W's on the record are always good. But absolutely, I think what you first said is the key to the situation. It is still early days. We've only played Leon once. We haven't done the return legs. There's other top teams in our league that could dethrone us and dethrone Leon also. The numbers are different, but it would definitely punish us if we, if we dropped points anywhere along the route before we play Lyon again. So obviously we're really happy to be at the top, but it's, it's not done, sealed or delivered by any means yet. There's a lot of blood, sweat and tears that still have to go into this league to keep us at the top. And, and that game against Lyon, of course, was at the Parc de Prince. What, what was that like to play there for the team? It was amazing. Obviously a little saddening when there's no fans, but everybody's experiencing that right now. It's a gorgeous field. The pitch is just a carpet. As a goalkeeper, you just kind of want to lay on it knowing you get to dive there. It's so much better. Um, We got to do some training all day. We kind of not spent the day at the park, but we got there early in the morning. The girls did a walkabout. Other players did a training in the the gym that's there previous that weren't in the squad. Um, It was just amazing. It It was amazing to kind of feel that full professional excitement that men, I assume and hope that they you know, take advantage of and they feel every game. If we could just turn our attentions to the Champions League now, obviously you guys have drawn Gornick Lexka in the last 32. What was your reaction to that draw? Oh God, it's going to be cold. (laughs) No, I'm, I think we were, I think we were kind of going to be happy with all of the pool. From my understanding our it could have been Florence, um, Poland, a Norwegian team or a Danish team or sweet. I don't know. I think it was another Scandinavian. Oh no, no. Yeah. It was Swedish. It was going to be Gothenburg if I'm not mistaken. So personally I wanted to scratch out Scandinavia really quick. Cause I think December in Scandinavia is not good for Parisians. Uh, we would have definitely invoked all our Nike gear that we possibly have and probably requested more to really cover up fully. But, and then obviously with my background, I would have loved to return to Italy for a game. However, current, 
situations that we all know, it's maybe not the best place to kind of take a little visit. So I think all in all, we actually probably got the best draw for us. Fantastic. And and just switching the focus slightly now. So you also have a sponsorship role behind the scenes at the club. And before we get into that in a bit more detail, could you just tell us a little bit about your sports management background in general? I know you did a master's degree and also got some experience at Benfica as well. My background outside of the pitch is quite unique and colourful. I won't spare you. I'll spare you all those crazy details. But basically, as an American and going to university in the States, it's common. So I got my first bachelor's degree in the United States. I promised my mom I'd always go back to school. And the moment arrived when I was playing here in France to do just that, I fell across, literally stumbled. It just kind of popped up on my computer. I think it's, you know, the computer listening to what you inner desires creepily. And, it, and an ad popped up for the Football Business Academy, which is located in Switzerland. And it was just the right moment, like time, the right moment. And I saw this opportunity and I, and I took it. It was amazing because you're able to study while I was able to finish that season of football. At that moment, I wasn't sure if I was going to continue on the field, but I knew that I wanted to continue a career off the field. And so this really was the perfect opportunity because of the way the courses were there through Zoom. And at that time, which is so funny to think of now, it was almost the biggest question in my head, whether or not to do the, the course was because half of it was online. And back then, back then being a couple of years ago, that seemed unfathomable and almost not serious that it wasn't re- like you don't study online. Um, and that put a question mark in my head, but obviously I'm extremely happy and thankful that I did it. And now clearly it's the absolute norm. <laughs> Universities are probably going to have options of half studying from home, half studying on campus. But so again, I was able to do half of it from my home. We had this really cool kickoff of it in China of all places, which clearly would not be happening now if this was the case. But we did get to go to China and do Soccer X, which was an amazing experience. Then we finished a second semester and then I had to do an internship, which the the school provides and, and helps you with. So they connected me with Benfica and I was able to move to Lisbon for a few months and experience that amazing culture and football passion, which was so cool to see at Benfica. I got to be a part of a couple Champions League games and a couple other events that happened there during my time working there. I learned a lot about such a historical club and how that kind of plays over in today's market. Um, And they're also a really unique club because while they're storied and they're a top club, they, they understand who they are in the football market and economy. And they do a really great job of, of playing it where they can and, and things of that nature. Yeah. And then I had to move to Switzerland for a couple months to finish my degree. And then I found myself trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And a, a fateful flight put me in contact with the sporting director of PSG. And, and here I am with two contracts, top of the table with my amazing teammates and hopefully bringing and helping the women's game develop through my sponsorship role. After our discussion, we'd kind of decided that it would be a two-way street Football would be my number one and I would be fully on the women's team and and be a full-time football player, but I could also have a contract in the marketing and sponsoring department, working solely for the women's side, trying to bring in standalone sponsors for the women. But at my disposal, I would be working with the men's sponsoring team, which is obviously doing a great job creating PSG into the global brand that it is and Jordan and all the other things we have going on our business intelligence team and, and everything that goes on behind the scenes at PSG that I get to be a part of now. So it was an amazing decision and I'm, I'm really glad I get the opportunity to do both. 
No, that's really, really cool. And and how important is it, in your opinion, to have someone within the team that's also involved in that sponsorship side and behind the scenes and, and within that decision making? Because just occasionally there can be a slight disconnect between the two, I'd imagine. Absolutely. I think that's an outstanding way to put it. And I never realized as much until now when I'm stepping into it. And there's some sponsorship ideas or businesses that I would like to contact because I know how it's used on the field or why my teammates would actually authentically be connected to those brands. And I think it's a huge, huge, huge benefit to the team. I actually think more teams probably should start taking advantage of this. And obviously in the men's top division, they're not going to have a player do both, but I think maybe having a liaison or having that relationship with a player. So you understand really what's happening in the locker room. Cause I do think it makes a huge difference in understanding the mentality of the players on the field, what they need, what they'd like, I think can really help from a marketing perspective and going after certain brands and businesses. What would you say your own personal aims and aspirations are for the rest of the season, both on and off the field? I mean, on the field, I'd like my whole team to stay healthy and every single one of us get to the finish line at the top of the charts and get some trophies on the wall for everyone um, from the league. Amazing to win the league this year, but especially a Champions League would be awesome. I won't get too greedy and want all three of the trophies this year, but two of them would be really fantastic. Um, a third would just be icing on the cake. Within that, from the sponsorship role, obviously because of the world that we're living in today, it's a little more difficult. However, I am able to make a little headway and do some stuff more on women's development and, and try to get some other projects kind of rolling. But I would love to have signed two to three sponsors, which is a really big ask considering, I think if I get one solid sponsor, I'm probably doing awesome. But if I could get three, it would really be a great way to to end this crazy year. And especially I'd love to just kind of sign sponsors that are in line with where I'm hoping the club is going. What are your Thanksgiving plans? Because I appreciate they're probably a little bit different this year to, to normal. Well, to be honest, they're probably not that much different considering I've been abroad for so many years that Thanksgiving has always been a little strange per se. I do usually try to get my teammates, even the foreign ones, involved in Thanksgiving somehow. So last year we did a Friendsgiving where everybody just kind of brought something either that they thought was an American Thanksgiving dish or from their own personal country, which was fun. I had discussed with uh, our manager if we could get our cooking staff to cook us some Thanksgiving and he was going to talk to the dietitian. But it's a international break this week, so it didn't make sense to do it just for the few girls that are still with us. So hopefully, fingers crossed, next, probably not next week because the girls just come back at the end. But the next week, we'll still be able to, to do it, kind of share this North American tradition as we have other North Americans. We have two Canadians. And while we don't say share the same Thanksgiving day, we can just pretend that it's everybody's Thanksgiving, which is fun. Um, I will be making pumpkin pie tonight because it's my favorite thing ever and doing my own mini Thanksgiving. But hopefully once France comes out of this lockdown, I'll have a few Friendsgiving dinners just a little delayed. So that was Ariana Crescione. And the reason we featured it this week is because it's it's, it's really rare, isn't it, that Leon lose a domestic game and and how significant is that result for the French top flight, do we think? Personally, I, I want it to be significant because I'd like to see like you know the the Champions League be more open I want to see like it's Leon are obviously a formidable team but if they can be beaten I think that makes European women's football like a whole lot more exciting than if Leon are pretty much dead set to win every game they play 
is this a, a blip? Do you think then for Leon, or do you think uh, the the guard is changing in France now? I know Paris are really determined to do well both in the league and the Champions League this year. I think it's probably it's interesting because I'd like to say that it's it's probably just a small blip because as you say they are this formidable team, but then by the same token they're a team that aren't used to losing, certainly not on the domestic front. So how they react will be really really interesting. I know they've got a few injuries and a few players missing. Um, and I think that that just shows that even the cream of the crop and the best do have to adapt and can struggle to adapt. So, yeah, I think it's probably too early to say off the back of one result that that's the end of, of their dominance. But it will certainly be interesting to see how how the next few games pan out from their perspective. So we're going to look now at the FA Cup and following the pausing of this season's Women's FA Cup during the national lockdown, the rearranged dates for the first three rounds of the competition proper have been announced. The first round proper will take place on Sunday the 13th of December. Uh, the second will take place on Sunday the 3rd of January. And the third round, Sunday the 17th of January. The government's latest three-tiered system means some of the finer details, including travel between tiers, still need to be clarified. And the FA will update in due course, so it's certainly something to keep an eye on. Before we even get to the first round, though, there are still four third-round qualifying matches to take place. It's going to be it's certainly a welcome boost isn't it? We're going to get onto the National League in a minute, Andrew, but it's certainly a welcome boost for these smaller clubs for the FA Cup to be coming back. Absolutely, it is, Luke. Yeah, and uh, and obviously, the, the, as you say, the finer details uh, to be hammered out. But yeah, for the uh, for the, the the 24 teams that are in the first round, there's no new teams uh, coming into the competition at this stage. The National League teams will come in in the second round. Um, but for those 24 teams, or at least uh, a few more, of course, depend. Uh, you know, we were competing in the the previous qualifying round. Um, it's it's great to to, to, to to have that competition back underway and, you know, for, for, for dreams to continue. I think uh, Stourbridge are the, the, the lowest uh, ranked team in the competition, whatever happens with the earlier qualifying. And they've got an incredibly difficult uh, challenge away at Wolves because, uh, I mean, if you're looking at the, the, the National League uh, Division One Midlands table, uh, Wolves before this current lockdown uh, were dominating it six from six, um, 18 points, obviously, plus 34 goal difference. So they're scoring goals left, right and centre. So for uh, for uh, Stourbridge, that's going to be a, a, a toughie. But there are some very attractive fixtures in there. Bournemouth uh, hoping to, to, to try and cause an upset against Southampton women which will be interesting. Exeter against Cheltenham is an interesting one as well from uh, the fourth to fourth tier sides. So lots of interesting games in their Billericay against Maidenhead as well. And then, as I say, the Northern and Southern Premier Divisions of the National League enter in the second round. Can you, Andrew, then give us an insight into how clubs have managed during the latest lockdown to keep players engaged? And also, do you think the pause will impact on teams at all? Do you think we could see some different surprising results as teams find their feet again? And uh, what date are they planning on coming back? Well, obviously, uh, like the first lockdown, there's been a lot of uh, Zoom remote training sessions, and uh, everybody uh, everybody dialing in and, uh, and 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 having having skill sessions and ball mastery sessions and everything else uh, uh, remotely. Um, the FA Women's National League comes back on the 13th, the same as the FA Cup. Uh, obviously, no teams are necessarily going to be asked, apart from those qualifying round gatches, are going to be asked to uh, uh, go straight into competitive games uh, without 
you know proper training because that does risk injury and everything else so yeah we might see some interruption of course of momentum amongst some teams that were doing well before lockdown we might see teams who think that they've got a better system prepared they've got time to go away and watch videos that's another thing that teams are doing over lockdown is watching videos of their games so yeah we might see some teams say right let's have a let's let's give this a fresh start this is a a new start to the season if you like and so we'll we'll have to see what results uh, pan out Excellent. Well, that is it. Thank you very much for joining us. My thanks to Emily, Hannah and Andrew. And don't forget to give us a follow on social at TWFP1 on Twitter and the Women's Football Podcast on Instagram. Until then, look after yourselves and we'll see you all very soon. Very soon.